Maybe you'll recognize the lyrics to this song. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. No is the saddest experience you'll ever know. Yes, it's the saddest experience you'll ever know. Because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. One is the loneliest number, worse than two. It's just no good anymore since you went away. Now I spend my time just making rhymes of yesterday. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. And Three Dog Night goes on and on and on. And by the end of the song, you know that one is the loneliest number. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you remember the day that song debuted. Or if you even know who Three Dog thank you, if you even know who Three Dog Night is, because those who don't know who Three Dog Night is would make the rest of the folks here feel pretty bad and pretty old, all right? But they came out with that song, and, and I think that as you listen to music, particularly uh, that in the secular realm, pop culture type of stuff, the top 40 type of music, you're going to recognize very quickly that, that in our music, we recognize the value and the desire that is built into us to have relationships. If you think about the songs that resonate most with people that seem to be most popular, many of them are about relationships. Those that resonate with young people in particular about relationships in many cases. Our, our music reveals that relationships are very important, and I really believe our lives do too. As much as we hate to admit it, we desperately need people. We desperately need them. And if this is the case, then I wonder why do we allow ourselves to go through life alone in many cases? You know, there are folks here today surrounded by 150 of your closest friends, and you feel so alone this morning. You are going through life alone. And yet you realize and you understand the value of relationships, and you know you desperately need them, and yet you, for whatever reason, are alone in life. Maybe by circumstances, maybe by your own choice. But I also wonder, why do we seem to give a badge of honor to those who can seemingly stand on their own, that rugged individual? How do we give badges of honor to those people if relationships truly are so important? And why do we do things that cause us to lose friends and ruin relationships? I hope to answer some of those questions this morning from God's Word, so I want you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes over in the Old Testament, right after Proverbs. If you got a Bible and need to, look it up in the table of contents, by all means, and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're in a series on Ecclesiastes called Chasing the Wind, and we're looking at the two voices in the book, the voice of the teacher, who gives us a godless view of life, just what life would be like without God in it at all, and then the voice of the author, who really is, is shaping the content of the book to lead up to the words he'll write at the end of chapter 12 that show us that life truly cannot have meaning and cannot have fulfillment apart from a close and growing and ongoing relationship with God. Now, last week, we looked at the fact that life isn't fair, and then you die. 
Now, you could have taken that as a really discouraging sermon, but we understand that our response to that makes all the difference. And so this week, what we'll see is here are some possible solutions to the fact that life isn't fair, that people are oppressed, that there are issues in this world we have to deal with. We're going to get some possible solutions. You're going to get some further examples of that and some more negative results if you handle all that stuff in a godless way. You can, according to what we'll see this morning, just throw yourself into unbridled competition with everyone else. You can also give up in apathy and just say, I quit. You can go crazy over getting things done and accomplished. You can try to outwork everybody to get to the top. And then you can realize what life is like when you reach the top. Now, those are some things that we'll look at this morning that really can lead us into some very subtle but very serious sin. The remedy that we'll see from Ecclesiastes this morning is to live life in proper relationships with other people. And so I'm going to call us this morning, just so you know, at the end of the sermon, I will call us to repent of the sins that we see in this passage. So just get ready for it. All right, so that's where I'm heading. I'm not going to sucker punch you. I'm going to tell you up front. We're going to lay it out, tell you what's going on, and then we're going to be called to, to repent, face the facts over what this Scripture tells us. All right, so look at it. Chapter 4, verse 4, and we're going to read to, to verse 16. I saw all labor and all skillful work is due to a man's jealousy of his friend. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. So who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself from good? This, too, is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if somebody overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a, follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before him, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This, too, is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now, I'll be honest with you, I really don't want to preach this song. I just have to tell you ahead of time, because the call to repentance is not primarily for you. Because I've had to deal with this stuff all week long. You may see what is produced on Sunday morning and figure that's the only time that I've dealt with this passage of Scripture. But I want you to know that the Lord tends to uh, thump me pretty good during the week over the things that I'll preach on. And this is a sermon, quite honestly, I don't want to preach because now I'll be accountable for it. And I hope that as you hear it, that you will not resist it, but you'll join me in simply being accountable for what we hear. This is, this is, I think, a very real and very powerful message that we get from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. There are going to be two parts to this sermon. You'll see this on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. Uh, kind of show you the structure real quick. We're going to focus first on the kinds of people who lose friends and ruin relationships. Then we're going to look at the remedy for that and why one truly is the loneliest number. How can you have quality relationships and why do you need them? 
So this is not meant, I'll just tell you again, this is not meant for you to say, well, I know somebody like that. They need to hear this. I'm going to get the CD or point them to the website where the recording is, and I'm going to tell you, you need to listen to this sermon. And my pastor preached this Sunday because, you know, he was talking about you. All right, now that's going to be real easy because every, every kind of person I mention here, you're going to think, well, I know somebody like that. I work with that person. I live in the same home with them. They're sitting right next to me right now, as a matter of fact. You're going to think, you're going to think of other people, but I want us all this morning to turn the mirror on ourselves and have the Lord penetrate our hearts as individuals and as a church and see where God needs to call us to repentance from the sins that we'll see. All right, so we're, we're looking in the mirror this morning. Five different kinds of people that lose friends and ruin relationships. Now, you follow along in the back of the book. The first is found in chapter 4, verse 4, and it's the competitor. The competitor. Look, look with me again uh, in verse 4. I saw that all labor and skillful work. Now, stop, stop there. He's talking about some good stuff that's produced. Labor and skillful work. Now, this is hard work this guy's talking about. That word labor there means heavy and wearisome and difficult. This isn't something that you just go and kind of float through life and whatever. This person is working hard. And we have many people here who have worked hard in their lives or are still able now, currently working hard in your life. But then what does he say? It's all due to a man's jealousy of his friend. He's talking about the rivalry, the envy, the indignation that someone might get ahead of us. And so much of what drives our hard work, our skillful labor, our desire to produce, comes from this sin of jealousy. Maybe you know someone looking in the mirror. Maybe you know someone who's driven crazy by the success of other people. Uh, that person is never content just to be doing what he can do and producing what he's capable of, but he always has to win. It's funny because with children, and I have four of them, you see this all the time. One kid will declare a race after he's already to the point where the race ends. I win, he says. And the other kids think, I didn't know there was a race. But then they turn it around on him next time, don't they? They run to the end of the hallway and say, I win. And the other kid says, well, that's not fair. I didn't know there was a race, and yet isn't it true that sometimes we grow up and we do the same things? We always feel sometimes like we're falling behind. And this drive to succeed described here in chapter 4, verse 4, is all-consuming. This insane desire to be the first to get to wherever it is we think we need to get. If you're curious about, well, how do I spot a competitor in life? How do I know if this is something in my life that I need to be aware of? Well, typically, these people are very aggressive. They're very assertive. They enjoy showing off what they have, what they can do, and it's subtle, though. They're not just like the kid who just says, hey, watch me, but they do it in ways that draw attention to their families. Maybe they're just comparing themselves, their families, their stuff to other people. They feel as if unless they are the best in the world at what they do, then they are just the worst in the world at what they do. There is no in-between for them. They either are first or they are last. I had a shirt in high school that I wore a few times just to remind myself because this is something I struggle with. I am a competitor. You know what the shirt said? Second place is the first loser. That's a shirt that I wore just to remind myself, if you're not winning, then you're not anything. 
Sometimes we operate by that. This person will also devalue others. They're just casual dishonesty, casually taking advantage of other people to get to the top. They lack empathy. They're typically very stingy. They're critical of other people. They might complain about the faults that other people have because that's keeping them from getting to where they need to go. They're difficult to work with because they're all about their own agenda. So they may not come out and say that, but you can pick it up. And this week, maybe you'll notice some things in yourself or in those that you're around on a regular basis to say, you know what? We're just trying to win. They don't care about other people. People to them are a means to an end. If people can help them win, then they'll bring people along. If people need to be stepped on in order to win, then that's what they'll do. And we see that all over the place. This, this competitor is typically often uh, oversensitive to criticism. They, they can't handle a disagreement. They, they, don't like, they don't like you to call them out on anything because they have to be seen as perfect and infallible without error in any way. They're inflexible and everything must go as, as they see it should go. And so they don't see any positive typically in anything except what they do. Now, the problem with this is that what we don't see in these people, because it's very easy to be now critical of those folks, and to say, well, you're just a joke. Look at you. You're trying to get ahead of everybody. Or it's easy now to get down on yourself and say, I'm just worthless and awful. But what's not seen in, in these cases is this person's past. What, what hurts and failures they've had, which now drive them to compete for some goal that they might not even be able to identify. We don't see the past hurts and the put-downs from the folks that should have loved them. We don't see the inferiority that they feel, this deep-rooted sense of inadequacy, and so they have to excel at everything. We don't see that often in them. We often don't see their fatigue, that they're never able to relax. We don't see their fear. It drives them to perform and to pretend as if they're perfect at everything. I came across something this week. Uh, that I thought was was pretty good, a quote from a commentary that I was studying. And, and this author said that, that the noun used for a non-African white person in one of the African languages, all right, so this is what the an African uh, tribe or, 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 or language says about the non-African white person. This is their noun. This is what it means. A person who endlessly rushes around to no apparent purpose. You look around, they're talking about us. A person who rushes around, endlessly rushes around to no apparent purpose. You ever felt like that? I'm competing, but I don't know what the prize is. I, I think I've won, but I'm not sure if the game's over. I guess I need to keep going. The competitor always leads himself or herself to ceaseless work but despair. He says, this too is futile and a pursuit of the win. How does this person lose friends and ruin relationships? He or she steps on people to get where they need to go. This person hurts someone intentionally or not, and they really don't care as long as it gets them to where they need to be. This person is difficult to work with. This person alienates himself from everyone around him. And let me tell you this, if you find yourself being this type of person in the negative sense, now there's a positive sense to competition, but in the negative sense, it's not just your personality, it's a sin. It's not just your personality, it's sin. Now, I want you to come to grips with that. I'm not trying to call you out. I don't have anybody in particular in mind. 
But I want you to know, if this is you, it's not just, oh, that's just who I am. You need to deal with me as I am. No, no, no. It's sin. Plain and simple. So my, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you would be, come to Jesus to be healed from the past stuff that now drives you to where you are, and to be forgiven of the sin and get a new start this morning. Don't walk away still being the competitor in a negative sense that you have been. So that's the first person who loses friends and ruins relationships. Second person is the bum. Look at the next verse. Verse 5. The fool folds his arms. <laughs> this person may be capable, but they refuse. I will not do it, they say. But they do as little as possible to get by. You want anybody like that? Seriously, don't elbow them. Don't look at them. Point them out. Call them. This person, maybe they feel like they're above certain things. They don't have a strong work ethic. Uh, maybe they have offers, but they're holding out. You know, maybe if you've seen Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and Clark and his wife are talking, and, and they're talking about Cousin Eddie, who's been unemployed for seven years. And Clark looks at his wife and says, in seven years he couldn't find a job? And his wife looks at him and says, well, Ellen, you know, Eddie's wife, says he's holding out for a management position. He just refuses to do anything. Now, again, if you're not physically capable, please don't read into this. That's not what I'm talking about. But this is the person who maybe could do something and won't. They have a sense probably of entitlement, which indeed permeates our society. We expect something for nothing, and we're all prone to it. Now, this can be that prototypical, stereotypical person. You think, well, they're just a bum out on the street. They just expect people to take care of them for nothing. Now, that is the case sometimes, but I've got a feeling that, that what's more subtle and probably more applicable to many of us is that this sense of entitlement, this sense of being a bum can affect us because we get to the point sometimes where we expect certain perks and privileges for who we are, for what position we hold, for what we have done, for how good we are, and maybe even for what we've been through as hard as it's been. And we expect now that people and life and God owe us something for all of that stuff. And you know what we do when it doesn't happen? We fold our arms. We say, this isn't fair. I'm not doing anything. You know what I've been through? You know who I am? Do you know how good I am? Have you seen my resume? Do you know what I can do? And if you don't recognize that, then fine, I'm not getting involved. That's probably a little more subtle. You've probably seen employees behave as if they deserve special treatment. Maybe because of their seniority, their longevity, their employment position, their credentials, their informal leadership in the organization, their past performance, I've earned it. Maybe their special circumstances, they believe they deserve a better or, 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 or higher salary, certain incentives or perks or awards or appreciation or a parking spot or whatever it may be. I, I'm thankful, and no one has suggested this to me, which is great, and probably because I live across the street and it's really not that far of a walk, but no one has suggested that we design a parking space that says, for the pastor. I would turn it down, I'll tell you that. But I'm so thankful that we don't have that kind of mentality that permeates us. So, well, let's give certain perks to certain people because of their position. We stand, I want you to know this, I stand with you on equal ground before the cross. 
all in need of Jesus Christ, none higher than the other when it comes to the root and the deepness of my sin. I stand with you. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. You're not worse than me. I'm not worse than you. We all stand in equal need of Jesus Christ. I may have a certain role to play here in this church, but I am no higher spiritual in God's economy than any of you. None raised above it. All of us need Jesus Christ, myself included. I don't need a parking space. You understand what I mean? Or a better office. I don't, I don't need those things. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just saying, look, we all are on equal ground. And the moment we begin to feel as if I have earned this, people owe me something, that's when we become the person described here, the bomb who refuses to do things, refuses to get their hands dirty, and begins to complain when everybody doesn't recognize who they are and what they can do. He folds his hands, he says, but only to consume his own flesh. He doesn't get it anywhere. What's he wind up with? He looks and he's got nothing to eat but his own flesh. He has nothing in his hands but the wind that he's been chasing. There is great freedom and living as if you are owed nothing. Great freedom in living as if you are owed nothing. And there's great reward to working hard to earn what you have. This person, the bum, loses friends and ruins relationships because he makes himself dependent upon everybody else and becomes a complainer. The third person is the stressor. The stressor. The first person may fold his arms. This person wrings his hands. <laughs> the stressor, look at verse 6. Better one handful with what? With rest than two handfuls with effort and pursuit of the wind. Pursuing two handfuls. Lots of effort. Lots of hard work. And he says it's just the pursuit of the wind. This is the person, I imagine, who bites off more than he can chew person who is worn out, never getting any rest, running on empty all the time. And unfortunately and surprisingly, much of what they take on is self-imposed. They have unrealistic expectations and goals, demands that they have imposed on themselves that no one would expect them to keep up with. Maybe they have a savior complex. Well, if I'm not there, then... It's not going to be any good. Those people depend on me. Let me tell you what, as a pastor, this is number one right here for me. This is number one. Unrealistic expectations of what I should be or could be doing or whatever it may be. And our church has been gracious enough not to put tremendous unrealistic expectations, but I do it to myself. So if, I, if you're there, you're the stressor, I join you, I understand. This is a person who can't say no. Two handfuls. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to accomplish everything. This is the anxious person who's always checking, always stewing over the bottom line. Worried, worried, worried about some things that they can't even describe. What are you worried about? I don't know. It's got to be something I need to be stressed about. I'm just waiting for it. So I'm ready to be stressed. I'm already stressed because there's certainly something that's going to stress me out. Do you ever wake up just stressed? And then you drink like five cups of coffee on top of it? Whew! That's not, oh, I've done it. The physical and emotional effects of this, you know them. Blood pressure is high. Maybe you face depression and headaches and panic attacks and anxiety you can't describe. The wisdom from Ecclesiastes, it says what? Better to attempt much, the one handful, but not too much. 
some handfuls so that you'll find that life is within your grasp. You can accomplish realistic goals. You can do realistic things. You can accomplish one handful in life, but two is going to be more than you can get. It's an impossible goal, and it results in chasing the wind. Realize that this affects relationships in a big way. Work stress is related to unhappiness in marriage. Stress can cause us to be less than careful with people that we love, the way we treat them. We become more critical, more self-focused. We, we reduce the time that we work on and build relationships. Relationships that are exposed to stress over a long period of time, no matter how much you love one another, no matter how solid of a Christian you are, those relationships exposed to high stress over time are bound to break down at some point. They're bound to falter at some point. This person, this stressor, loses friends and ruins relationships because he wears everybody out. You know who I'm talking about. You may be that person. You just wear everybody out. You're stressed all the time. And all of that just causes more stress. <laughs> it's a never-ending cycle. The fourth person is the workaholic. The workaholic. Did I tell you I didn't want to preach this sermon? Verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. So who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good? This, too, is futile and a miserable task. No companion, he says. Probably took the people in his life for granted. Just assume they'd be there when he got done with work or retired or whatever it is. He's cut off relationships or reduced the time he invests in them to concentrate on work. There's no end, the Bible says here, to his struggles. He's frustrated. He, he's living to feel valuable and wanted, but always on the clock, never able to say no or turn it off. And he's never content, even when he accomplishes the things that he thought he set out to accomplish. In this case, riches. The driven person. Always on. And he says, who am I struggling for? Essentially, what's the point? He looks around, and what does he not have? A companion. Not even a brother, not even a son to pass things on to. And he says, why am I doing this? He says, i got nobody. Not only that, but I'm depriving myself of good. He works thinking that will be good, and then he gets to the end of that, and what is it? No good. It's futile. His efforts aren't even benefiting himself. Does he have work ethic? Absolutely. Does he have balance? Not at all. And the, the, the writer here says this is a futile and miserable task. Why do people do this? Well, why do we have workaholics? This is a big deal in our society. A subtle but big deal. I'll tell you this. You don't have to work for 80 hours a week at your place of business or at your job being there 80 hours a week to be a workaholic. You don't have to be there all the time to be a workaholic. Workaholic is simply addicted to his work, which may or may not happen all in one place. Maybe you grew up with parents who were achievement-oriented, and you never felt as if you could achieve high enough to gain their approval or to gain their response in a positive way. And so now you're going to work yourself to death to prove to them that you're worth something. Now that sounds childish, but let me tell you, it's true. In many cases. Some of us deal with that today. Maybe, maybe you say, you know what? Building relationships is hard, and I just soon go to work because the other stuff is hard to do, and I don't like getting too close to people in the first place, and so going to work just kind of gives me an excuse. Well, I have to work. 
And so you do that to avoid intimacy and close relationships. Maybe you're trying to impress those who are in authority, and you figure, if I just put in some more time and work a little harder than my boss and those who run the company or the organization that you work for, then finally they'll be impressed. Maybe you're trying to fill up this internal sense of worthlessness and loneliness and emptiness by accomplishing things that sort of are external that you can put on yourself as badges and medals that you can wear and say, look at me. Maybe those are the things that cause it. I came across a list of the signs of a workaholic. Here are some things that maybe you'd identify in yourself. You take your work home. Since you got that big promotion or you're trying to earn it, you feel that work has to come first now above everything else. If you aren't doing at least some work, you feel bored and unproductive. You're constantly talking about work and you can't relax. You feel resentment, though, about having to complete certain tasks when you'd rather be doing something else. You feel the oppression that your work and your addiction to it brings. Your self-worth is based largely on how you or others judge your performance at work. That drives you crazy. You cannot just sit down and be. Right now, you're frustrated because I'm not saying anything. You can't just be. You tend to schedule yourself for more than you can handle, believing that people will like you if you can accomplish more and see how good you are at doing all of those things. You're afraid that if you don't work hard, you'll lose your job or be a failure. You're a perfectionist, a micromanager. You feel that your wife, if you're married, your husband, if you're married, and your children, they exist simply to support your efforts at work. And you get mad when they wonder where you are. You work while you're on vacation. You're not in the shape that you'd like to be. Your work always seems to take the precedence over family and leisure time. You have no social life outside of work events. You don't know who you are apart from work. Those are some signs of the workaholic. And the irony of it all is that this person looked around and said, Who am I working for? Why am I doing this? It ruins relationships and families. It actually, studies show, make you less, makes you less productive. And it does not bring what you hope for. It isolates you. It makes you hard to know, hard to deal with. And people get tired of waiting on you. They get tired of waiting around for you to be the person that you need to be in that relationship. And you have nothing in the end. I'll tell you this, that working hard is good. And it's biblical. But being addicted to work is a sin. And it's simple. The, the final person is the know-it-all. This person um, will remain nameless, of course, because they're not, they're not here, and we don't want to call them out. But look at verse 13. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who what? No longer pays attention to warnings. This person's reached the top. They've gotten everything they wanted. They're in the position that they wanted to be in. They no longer pay attention to warnings. Unteachable, arrogant, self-centered, elitist in their mentality, blind to their own faults. And yet they go around enforcing their thoughts and opinions on everybody and everything. They never acknowledge that they don't know something. Have you ever been in a conversation with a person that, that seems to know everything about everything? I wouldn't be too impressed. Because in many cases, they really don't know. They're just making it up. That's the truth. I'm guilty of that. I know I am. 
with making it up. If you're sick, they're sicker. You say the sky is blue, they're going to argue with you and tell you, no, 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 it's really green. If you've been somewhere, they've been further. You know what I'm talking about. You can't ever win a debate with them because, like I said, if they don't know what they're talking about, they just make it up and sound confident. They know it all. This person loses friends and ruins relationships, plainly put, because nobody likes to know it all. Nobody. These people will isolate and alienate themselves from all those around them. But I want you to know, as I said, this is a call to repentance. Why? Because we learn that one is the loneliest number because God did not create you to go through life alone. God did not create you to go through life alone. God is a relating God. You see in the Bible, the mystery of the Trinity, relating to one another, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship. You see relationship established in the Garden of Eden when God creates Adam and says what? It's not good for man to be alone. Relationships from the very beginning of humanity. Jesus, when He shows up on the scene of anyone, you say, is just that rugged individual. What does Jesus do immediately when He begins His ministry? He calls 12 disciples. And three in particular He spent the most amount of time with. And then when He sends them out, how does He send them? Two by two. Relationships are important. The early church lived in relationships with each other. And we see in verses 9 through 12, two are better than one. Individualism has no place in the life of a Christian and in the life of the church. It has no place. We are in it together, and we need one another. Why? First, because you're limited. You are limited. He says two are better than one. That puts it pretty simply, doesn't it? You are limited. One isn't good. Two is better. There's so many advantages you look just in a marriage or in a business partnership where two people or more come together and to see what they can produce is more and sometimes exponentially more than what one person could accomplish. Great teams always have collaboration and people who don't care who gets the credit. And they work together because they recognize that alone I am limited. But together we can produce more and be better you will also fall down. Verse 10 is talking about, these three examples here, talking about the travel of a person. In the Middle East during that time, of course, when they traveled, the roads weren't great, and there's cliffs and pitfalls and so on, and occasionally people fell down. And he says, if one person falls alone, he's done. If he's got somebody with him, you can help him be picked back up. When you walk through life, you're going to have times when you fall down. Things will happen to you to knock you down. You may make an awful decision and knock your own self down. But if you have nobody there, you are helpless. But if you've got quality, godly people in relationship in your life, then you have a chance to get back up. You'll also get cold. Verse 11, these travelers often spent the night outside. And so he says, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? You're going to face adversity, dark days, and hard times. The winter of life is going to come. And you're going to need the comfort of other people, and it's okay to receive that. There are folks here today who have yet to receive the true comfort of other people because you said, no, no, no. 
too strong for that. I'm not really cold in my life. It's just kind of getting a little uncomfortable, but I'm okay. And you're missing out on what God has designed for you to experience and the wholeness He wants in your life because you will not receive it from other people. You'll also be attacked. If someone overpowers one person, two can resist him, it says in verse 12. You're going to have things in life that come at you when you least expect it. Robbers were on the road in those times, and they would wait for someone to walk by alone and attack them. The story of the Good Samaritan. You remember that story from Jesus? Same kind of concept. But if there are two people there, maybe they can fight off the attack that's coming. Companionship is of great importance when you encounter difficulties in life. And then finally, you would need strength. The end of verse 12, maybe for some a familiar part of a verse anyway. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Strength is gained through relationship with others. And when it comes to human relationships, it makes the point here that more is better. If one is bad and two is good, then three is better. And that's that cord of three strands. It weaves that, that visual for us there. One is bad, two is better, three is even better than that. And so I challenge you to unite with godly people who are loyal and wise can help pick you up, help keep you warm, help fight your battles in life. You can go through life alone and maybe think you accomplish your goals a little faster, a little easier. But you'll have to dig out of your own holes. You'll have to keep yourself warm in difficult times, and you'll have to fight all your battles. God has created your family, your spouse, your parents, your friends, your children, your church for your benefit to be made whole and full through all of that. And the person who goes through life alone is missing out, and sometimes intentionally, on what God has designed for you to experience. The last thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is a little insert that I put in the This is how we'll close this morning with this application. Take it out, and, and I want you to look at it. Along with the call to repent from being the competitor, the bum, the stressor, the workaholic, along with that call, I, I, want, I want you to apply the sermon this week in this way. You'll see some scriptures you can look at to review the ones we just saw to preview next week. And then look at it each day. Confess the sins of the competitor, the bum, the stressor, the workaholic. And or you may find more than one to know it all in you. Claim the forgiveness and newness offered by the death and resurrection of Christ. It's real and it's available. Commit to total discipleship and following of Jesus. Call on the Holy Spirit to fill you each day so that you can live as He's designed you. And count your service and your sacrifice as joys of knowing Jesus. Give yourself away. Secondly, here's where it gets a little more difficult. Write a card, a note, an email, a text, Facebook message, something. With words of encouragement and or congratulations to someone who is a known or secret competitor. Some of you say, I'm good at number one. Thirdly, list all the things you think that God, others, or this world owes you and then burn it. Seriously. Invest one hour this week in restoring or building a relationship that needs work. You know who they are. Maybe it's the person you're married to, or a friend, or a child, whomever, I don't know. 
Take a day off. No phone, no internet, no email, no checking the markets, or anything else related to work. And just be. You get number five, somebody's going to freak out. Start shaking and you just cut off the paper after number four, all right? Take a day off. Number six, ask someone who knows nothing about your line of work or interest for his or her opinion on your job or interest. If you know it all, that one's going to be hard. They don't know anything about it. And number seven, go out of your way to help someone in need this week, regardless of how they got there. I truly believe that the call to discipleship and the call to repentance, yes, is about how you respond in this moment. And so if you need to come and get on your knees before the Lord right here and in front of everybody, repent of your sin before the Lord, then do it. And I also believe that if that's where you stop, you will never become the person God has designed you to be. It matters tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday. It matters, yes, right now. So respond to the Lord. But it matters also. Total discipleship, true repentance is seen not just here, but not just now, but Monday through Saturday. So follow up with that guy. Not to impress me. I don't care. But because God has called you to do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, call us to repentance and change us, Lord, to make us the people that you want us to be. We thank you that you have created us for relationship with you and in relationship with others. But may we not walk through life alone and so live in sin as to think that we know more than you. We think we are okay by ourselves when you said we need you and we need others. So Lord, change us. Help us to apply the sermon this week and what we see on that insert. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.